Welcome to How Not to DM. I'm your host, Derek. Thanks for joining me on my quest to interview the very best dungeon masters on this plane of existence. Before we get started, I need to give my monthly shout out to all my patrons. Matthew, Brenda, Garrett, Jeff, Paul, Tavernot, Carol, Fernando, Jeff, Justin, and Matt. For those keeping score at home, that's two Jeffs and two Matts. Thank you all so much. You helped make this episode possible. If you'd like to support the show, want a shout out on my next episode, or want an inside scoop on my upcoming guests, consider joining. You can find the link in my episode notes, my link tree, or by heading to patreon.com slash hn, the number two, DM. One last announcement before we get started. As always, this month I am donating 10% of the money I bring in from ads and supporters like you to Encircle, which is a nonprofit organization with a mission to enable LGBTQ plus youth to thrive. If you want to check out more about Encircle, there's a link in my link tree where you can go learn more about them or donate yourself. And now, onto this episode's guest announcement. James Intracasso is an accomplished game designer, having contributed to seven different official D&D books and a slew of other third-party supplements, including his current gig as lead designer for Matt Colville's MCDM Productions. He's also written a few of his own games. This means he's got valuable insights into getting into designing games, what it's like working with some of the best folks in the industry, and how you can get your foot in the door. Enjoy! My name is James Nijicasso, and I am the lead designer for MCDM Productions, which is Matt Colville's production company. And I got into role-playing games when I was 10, watching my older brother and his friends play in our parents' basement. And then I got into the sort of professional design side much later in life. I was working full-time at National Geographic Channels as a television producer, writing and producing TV promos. And I started a blog and a podcast uh, not so dissimilar from this one. And eventually that blog caught the attention of some folks and things that I had put out on the DMs Guild and in some other marketplaces. And I started a freelance game design career, which had always kind of been a dream of mine, but, you know, one that I wasn't sure how to make happen. Uh, it turns out uh, if you do a lot of work for free for several years, uh, you might get somewhere with it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's a good pro tip. Yeah. So how did you get into running games for people? Was it really early on when you started playing with your brother uh, and such? Or was it kind of later in your, your gaming career? So it was pretty early on. So I used to watch my brother and his friends play. And I remember when I they were playing second edition Dungeons and Dragons when I was a kid. And it was like it blew my mind, right? Because as a kid, I had played a bunch of games on the Nintendo Entertainment System, like Zelda and Mario. And I always thought, like, wouldn't it be cool if you could sit down and roast a marshmallow? Or, hey, what if instead of jumping on Goombas, you punch them, right? Like, but you didn't have those options in video games. And so to see a game where you had these options of anything you could do in real life, you could do here, plus you had magic and fighting abilities and cool armor and magic items and stuff like that blew my mind. I was a big fan of The Hobbit as a kid and Lord of the Rings and all that good stuff. So it was a natural doorway in. And then one day my friends were over and my like a bunch of my brother's friends couldn't make it to uh, the D&D game. So his friends who were there invited us all to play with him. Nice. They needed a cleric, right? Like all that kind of stuff. So we played and then my, my friend Rich went home and said to his dad, we just played this game at James's house. It was so cool. And his dad said, oh, you know, I played that in college and pulled out the fantasy trip, which is Steve Jackson's might be his first or one of his first role-playing games, a fantasy role-playing game that is simpler than second edition Dungeons and Dragons. And I, we played that for years. And that's the first thing that I ran. Rich ran it for us. Rich's dad ran it for us. But within a year of playing, I was also running games. It was that sort of, you know, you're in fourth grade and in the summer, you're not old enough to have a job yet <laughs> and not much is expected of you. So you're just going to each other's house all the time, like in the summer, ride, ride my bike over here, ride my bike to your house, come over to me. And we basically 
basically took turns running games for each other and like giving each other's characters super powerful magic items and and all that kind of good stuff that you do when you're playing the game as a kid and you have all the time in the world so yeah very early on i was running games nice do you ever play with your brothers now that you're older and and that you're like actually designing stuff do you have them ever help you play tests or you know do you guys talk about that stuff at all yeah so my brother who introduced me to it his name is andrew for a while didn't play you know like as a as an adult he sort of fell out of it um he we played a couple of times together when i was still in high school and then just recently he said you know i i want to try it he's married now and his wife wanted to try it and so uh, i do run a game various role-playing games you know we played through storm king's thunder and we played through water deep dragon heist together and then we've also played monster of the week and so we've had a blast playing games together uh it's him and his wife and one of our friends and my wife uh so we all play together and uh, it's just been great and a really great way to stay in touch especially in the early days when it was like don't go anywhere just stay inside all the time so that was good yeah that's so fun. Yeah, my home group is my wife, my brother, or two of my brothers, you know, and some friends. So yeah, I, I love the family games. Yeah, it's a it's great. And it's great to be able to bond that way and to show like, this really means something to me to, uh, to folks. It's it's good. All right. So the kind of the, the big question I love asking guests is, the mistakes that you have made while running games. These could be very specific or they could be big overarching problems as part of, you know, running games and they can be old or they can be recent. Uh, So what are some of the the mistakes you've made running games for people? And what do you feel like are the lessons people can take away so that they don't do the same things you've done? Yeah. So like I said, I started right when I was about nine or 10 and I am 36 now. So uh, that's a lot of mistakes, a lot of a lot of chances to make mistakes. And uh, I feel like I've taken every one when it comes to running games. And certainly there's things that I did as a 10 year old that I think every who's running games at that age might do like railroading the players, you know, and sort of relying too much on. I, I find that particularly when I play a game like D&D, because it is safe, right? I go to the place where there are the most mechanics for me. I think this is true of of many games, right? The the mechanics sort of inform you how you're going to play the game, but sometimes I go there too much. So like there are a few D&D games that I think about where I went to the combat well way too many times because it was like, well, I know what's going to happen in combat, right? I feel comfortable there because the rules are broken, breaking the story down into slower than real time, six second increments that I can say like, okay, I know what's going to happen. I know how to adapt to this as opposed to, you know, something that might be a little bit more focused on the story outside of combat in an engine like D&D. And so being able to leave the confines of what is comfortable and realizing that, the players also want to have fun, right? And like, they're not gonna rely solely on you to entertain them. They are going to help you have fun and you're gonna have fun with them, I think is great. And also remembering like, these are your friends. They don't wanna see you fail. And they're also going to forgive the things that you're doing if they're not like 100% on all the time, I think are super, super important things to learn. And like, Within that, that led me to saying no to things sometimes that I wish I had said yes to, right? Like I can think of a time where I had a player uh, who still plays with me, uh, my good friend Vegas, wanted to intimidate a sapient crystal that uh, was taking over the body of the Raven Queen. Fourth edition D&D was wild. It was great. And like the rules in the adventure didn't say that that could happen, but it makes sense, right? The, the crystal is sapient, it's alive, it's evil. You should be able to at least try to intimidate it. I didn't even allow the check. And it was like, a all right, well, I guess I'll just attack the crystal then sort of moment. And what a bummer. What a bummer that was because we could have had a whole dramatic moment where he's trying to, you know, like Gandalf in front of the Balrog, you shall not passing this giant crystal. And I, I squandered that. So that sort of thing of being really open to things that make sense, even if they're not covered by the rules for me, is something that I wish I had embraced earlier. The other thing that I really wish I had embraced was I think over prepping can lead to those mistakes, too, where you're like, well, I did this thing and it took me a lot of time. So we're doing this thing. 
And I think being able to let go, having the confidence that you'll know what to do in the moment that you'll have brushed up your improv skills and that you can rely on your players, right? Like my players, if they want to go off the map, right? Or, or off the, the adventure, I say like, oh, you know what? I didn't have, I don't know what's there. Maybe you could tell me what's there, right? And then they're more willing to play because they're like, oh, cool. We can go off map as long as we're willing to help build this world and story. And so that sort of thing of like, everything needs to be hidden behind a curtain and, and I need to be put together and knowing what I'm doing. That, uh, leaving all of that behind is hugely helpful. And now I see people online who are like, oh, I'm so stressed uh, getting ready to run a game or whatever. And I don't feel stressed at all because I'm like, I'm just going to hang out with my friends. It's going to be great. Yeah, it's it, it does take a lot of skill. And I feel like it's kind of a good faith transaction between your players and yourself, knowing that you have that kind of relationship and you can rely on them, right? And And I think that, you also mentioned like people get nervous and they're worried like if I don't have this thing prepared, then I'm going to look bad or whatever. And so, yeah, I think it does boil down to good relationships with your players and knowing that they want to uh, have fun as much as you do. And and so usually they're pretty forgiving when stuff like that happens. So, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, do you have any particular favorite memories of moments in game they could have been improvised they could have been planned but moments that you know your group still talks about because of how fun or epic or crazy they were yeah yeah so i i mean you know i know fourth edition dungeons and dragons can be controversial it has such a special place in my heart because i in college i introduced a group of friends who i did theater with to dungeons and dragons with fourth edition and they loved it and we played multiple campaigns two campaigns from level one to 30 because that's what fourth edition went to and there i have a memory of this was a totally unplanned thing right they were in a showdown climactic moment in a in the campaign and they were, were in this showdown in this portal in front of the shadow fell and the party it was a party of six got split three and three because they were losing the encounter just a bunch of unlucky dice rolls and i had a bunch of lucky dice rolls for the monsters right they were losing the encounter badly. They were split on sides of the map and they were like, we got to get out of here. Three of them left and like left the room and left the dungeon. The other three went through the portal because they didn't have a way out. And that is a moment we still talk about because then for the next two weeks, I ran the group separately, right? Like the Shadowfell group and then we're going to run the material playing group. And so like that was a thing that happened that I still think about. One of my players drew a comic book of like their, that scene because oh, they were so excited and inspired by it and i didn't know all of them super super well because like at the moment we had just done theater but we weren't like hanging out all the time and now all six of those people are still friends that i game with regularly so that for me is a huge huge moment the other moment is in storm king's thunder there's a giant named Moog who you can meet, who you can sort of befriend in the adventure, but has the potential to like become a big violent hill giant at some point. And they befriended Moog and like basically the entire time kept Moog okay until at one point a player just decided like Moog's a liability. We got a killer and took it upon himself to do that with the rest of the party. And like, that's a moment we talk about because it was so shocking and surprising that that happened. And then the rest of the party went and revived Moog because they didn't want that to happen. And that's a moment that it's like, it's a cool thing where like somebody did something that everybody didn't want them to do. But because they were friends, they were able to talk about why it was happening above the table and then come back in the story and find a way to fix it, which mm. was great. Like, I didn't even need to be there for any of that to happen, really, other than to, you know, roll hit points for Moog. And so that was great. Very cool. Very cool. Drawing a comic book about a moment. That's how you know it's a good one. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so you've been running games for quite a while now then since you were a lot younger who have been some of the biggest influences on you on the way that you run your table and the way you kind of interact or plan or whatever it might be that is a great question so in the age of streaming and podcasting and actual plays i feel like my gm style has grown a lot more in the last 10 years 
because I've been more exposed to it in the last 10 years. So, you know, there's a lot of great people that I have worked with who I have seen run games and that has helped me. So like Matt Colville, for sure, has watching him run games, even watching his running the game series, which is great for new GMs. It's also great if you're an old GM to be like, oh, yeah, that is good. Like, I knew that and I forgot it. And that's great advice. Or sometimes he also, you know, puts a spin on some old hat advice, you know, dives really deep into it. And that's great. But watching him run the chain has been really enlightening and helpful. Watching him run his fourth edition game Dusk has been really cool to see the difference in the way he runs one system versus another. I definitely get from Chris Perkins a lot. So I watched the Dice Camera Action series when that was on. And to watch a designer run an adventure that they had written in a way that wasn't you know, by the book true to the adventure was really mind opening to me in a way that made me say, like, even the designer isn't using this adventure as a script. They're using it as a jumping off point and they're using it as a way to pull in stuff. That was super, super helpful for me to watch. And then, like, you know, I'm watching the the Matt Mercers of the world. Matt Mercer, obviously, I pr- probably everybody comes in and says something about Matt Mercer here. But uh, Celeste Konowich, who is the GM of Venture Maidens, really great storyteller. Great to see how she runs combat. I've learned a lot from her. Cat, who is on Dames and Dragons, uh, has been really, really great to learn from. So those are two podcasts that I recommend people go and check out because the fun those people have is immense. And then also Kat, who is from the Autonomic podcast, which uses the Burn Bright system, which is a system that she and I designed uh, with a bunch of other designers for Roll20. Kat is an amazing storyteller. And the way that they bring everybody together and tell different stories, she's just just incredible. And the way she works with her players to build that story and and gives them the reins sometimes and integrates what is going on. Like everybody should listen to Autonomic's great family friendly podcast. All right. I'll have to check that one out. I haven't heard of Celeste either. So I, I made sure to write that name down. Yeah. Just because I'm yeah. always looking for more people to, to listen to and learn from. So cool. Absolutely. Yeah. The Venture Maidens podcast is a good one. I'm biased because it was on our podcast network, but they had started before we got to them and just really, really good stuff. This episode of How Not to DM is brought to you by Gemmed Firefly. Need a fresh new look for the new year? Head on over to GemmedFirefly.com for the newest teas, mugs, and home goods styled with D&D gamer humor and aesthetics. As always, Gemmed Firefly makes every shirt to order, bringing you all of the softest and most comfortable shirts that thousands have come to love. And now, listeners of the show get a discount when you use the code DRAGON at checkout. Find your new favorite shirt at GemmedFirefly.com. And now, let's return to the show, starting up with a brand new minigame for Season 2. Welcome to Quickfire Chaos. This week, James and I are going to use some randomly generated themes, settings, and goals to create our very own adventure for 5e. Okay, this is interesting. The theme is conspiracy, and the setting is modern day. So we don't have to use modern day necessarily, but it could be fun. Yeah, I think we should. Let's do it. The, The dice have spoken. They have. Next, all I need is a D10 from you. And if you don't have one, I've got one to roll. I can definitely roll a D10 here. Okay, I have rolled a four. Okay, the goal is to discover a new planet. Or maybe it's the act of discovering a new planet from from the random table here. Okay, so it is a conspiracy. It's modern setting. And it's about discovering a new planet in some way. So where do we want to start? I mean, I think if we're in modern day, whenever there are modern day things, I 
am a fan of like conspiracy modern day, let's jump into what people know, right? The the more accessible your game is, the easier it is for people to get in. Let's start like in Earth, the real world, right? That's where we're going to be. It's modern day. It's the real world. Let's go for that because I like the idea of now you got to find a new planet for conspiracy reasons. Right. <laughs> right. Or maybe other people know about the planet, but that's the conspiracy, right? Who knows? Anyway. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So we're assuming that people know what they would know as a resident of our our little blue dot here that we all live on. Okay. Yes. Yeah, conspiracy. What, what do you think a conspiracy is for finding a new planet? I, I mentioned one, like maybe people know about it and other people don't, but what, what are some other ideas you got? Yeah, that so one, th- one place where my mind went is like, there is a, another planet in the solar system that is habitable, right? Mm. That people have known about for a long time. Maybe like the, the rich muckety-mucks, they know about it because they're going to get it. They've been trashing our planet. And then they're they're gonna take an Elon Musk rocket over to that world, and that Ooh. world is where you get all your five E creatures, right? That's where your your dragons and your flumps and your beholders and things like that are. They're all over in this fantasy world, and maybe you could even tie like real world lore, like ooh, you know, the Hobbit isn't actually fiction. It's like J.R.R. Tolkien was a space explorer and this is a story he pulled from this world. But then people were like, well, if we sell it as a, you know, like if we edit this after action report and sell it, it will be, people will never believe that it was actually a conspiracy. It's gonna, you know, fuel the fire of like, that's not real. That doesn't exist. Okay, so the rich people of this planet know about another planet. This other planet mirrors the the monsters and races that we know as the monsters and races from Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition, which is what we're using. Is it something about you're like workers on a spaceship and you end up there and you don't know why you're there and you've got to figure it out? Or is it like, you know, what, what do you think is kind of like the, the story arc we want to tell here? I like to go for epic and compelling often. And I wonder if the, if the story arc is like, Things are bad on Earth, right? It's modern day and things have gotten bad. You know, take your pick (laughs) of bad thing that could be destroying the Earth. War, you know, climate change, some sort of natural disaster. You know, maybe that super volcano in Yellowstone finally goes off or whatever. Maybe it's a fantasy thing, right? Like maybe something from that world has come to our world, right? Necromancy, magic, or just the encroach of magic in general has caused all sorts of of problems and so now i think people want to know you could save humanity if you can figure out where this world is and like you know get the resources from rich folk to be able to transport everybody and i think part of that is like you need to either convince or you're fighting against the rich folk and maybe then there's also like hey all these people who are on this planet like They need to be convinced, too. They have their own problems, their own dangers. It could almost be a two-phase thing where it's like, first, you got to get to the planet. Boom. Second movie. Oh, no. Now you got to survive. Yeah. And all of your technology doesn't work. And that's why you've got to rely on the classes of D&D instead, right? Yeah, exactly. Magic, but also your guns and your GPS and your whatever else. It isn't useful here. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it gives you a chance too to say like in the real world, maybe you start to uncover magic and things like that because this secret elite conspiracy is, you know, wielding magic and stuff from this world, right? The reason your your family has remained rich is because, well, they're using, you know, spells to cure people and now they run a pharmaceutical firm <laughs> and, and like that sort of thing, right? Yeah. Like maybe you could really you could really get in deep in in this way you could wow all right i like that so you got to figure out how to get there then once you get there you've got to figure out number one how to get everybody else there and number two how to convince the people who live there that it's it makes the most sense and that it's for the greater good kind of thing yeah exactly right you you don't have anywhere else to go and maybe you know again right like you might get there and if it's a medieval fantasy style world there might be some sort of dramatic good versus evil clash where the good people are like 
Listen, you can stay with us, but whew, we are getting our butts kicked in this war and we need your help. You know, uh, that sort of thing where you can fight then alongside with these other folk. And maybe even, you know, maybe when you get there, you can switch character sheets around and now you're playing people from the planet who are dealing with the outsiders, right? Like there's, there's a lot of fun ways you could do that. All right. Awesome. I love that. Okay. So the second half of the show is really uh, focusing on your work as a designer mm-hmm. and kind of how you got there and your advice and stuff for people who are looking to do that as well. So let's start off with, I know you kind of talked about it a little bit, but yeah, just a little bit more in depth about how you got into design initially and then how you got to where you are today working for MCDM. So I was working in TV, like I had said, and this is going to sound pretty wild to everybody, but at the time there weren't that many role-playing game podcasts. And I, the D and D next play test had just started. And I was like, so hungry to hear news about it and see stuff. And I remember I had a D and D news alert that went off like maybe once a month on Google. Now I still have the same alert. It goes off 20, 30 times a day now. Yeah. <laughs> and it is such a stark difference. And I remember saying to my wife, like, I just wish there was a show that like every week was talking about the D&D Next playtest and other D&D news that might be out there. Like, supposedly they're making a movie. I don't hear anybody talking about that. And so my wife said to me, like, you know how to do that. Like, you know how to put together a, a, an audio track. You know how to edit that. Like, maybe you could be the one to do that. And so I thought, all right, well, I called a bunch of my friends, including my friend Rudy, who will pop up in this story from time to time because he was a a big partner on this magical mystery tour with me. And I said, like, you know, we should do this. What do you think? And they were like, yeah, yeah, sounds cool. Like, how do we start? And so I emailed a guy named Jeff Greiner, who still runs a podcast called The Tome Show, which is like one of the longest running D&D news and interview podcasts. And I said to him, do you have any advice for me? I've, I've been listening to you. You're like one of the only people out there doing this. And he said, well, what's your idea? And I told him and he said, well, why don't you come do it on the Tome Show feed, which was very kind, didn't know me from anybody else. And so I thought like, oh, this is a big opportunity. He's already got an audience built in. He's already making it work. So we recorded a bunch of episodes. We put them up on the Tome feed. Jeff gave us feedback and advice and very, very helpful. From there, I was like, you know, I've got this built in audience. I should have another thing that I can direct them to. And I thought, like like I had said at the beginning, I always wanted to do game design. That was always a dream. I had no idea how to do it or what I was doing. So I started a blog called World Builder Blog. And I was like, I'll just point people over there and say, like, I'm making my world, my homebrew campaign world for fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons whenever it comes out. And we'll go from there. And so, like, I just started building stuff and it started narratively on the blog, right? Like here's the map and here's the countries and here's what I think is going on in them. But then eventually I was like, well, yeah, let me try my hand at making it a background. I think that was the first mechanical thing that I tried because that's pretty easy to see how those come together in D&D, right? right? You're like, you got your skills, you got either a tool proficiency or a language or two of either of those or one of both and you got your starting equipment and you got like your traits and stuff like that and your background feature which is like the trickiest thing to design in a background which is basically like why do you eat for free in town (laughs) and so i made some of those because when the player's handbook came out i was like oh you know it's cool that we have all these ones that are jobs but we're like the fantastic ones we're the ones where you're like your backstory is you were a polymorphed object for 10 years and you were used as a magic sword for a long time. And then a wizard came along and it turned you into something or whereas like you had a horrible curse or you were born prophesized for greatness or whatever, right? Like those sorts of things were missing. It was all like your job was you used to be a criminal or you were a guildsman or, or whatever. So being able to take those and do that was really cool. And I continued then I was like, well, let me try making a monster now. Let me try making a spell. And I just grew, grew, grew from there and, and made a lot of content on my blog. And then a couple of years later, the DMs Guild comes out and Wizards of the Coast said, like, we're looking for people here. And I thought, I've already got all this content, like, ready to go. I could be one of the first people on the DMs Guild with a lot of stuff. And, you know, maybe it's not the best, but it will be on there and people are looking for stuff on there. And so I put stuff on there, which by today's standards of what's on the guild would fail miserably. 
It's like a Word document I turned into a PDF with clip art and stuff like that. Yeah, there's so many crazy things now that people can use to make it look really good. It's nuts. Yeah. Yeah, there's even good templates on there. Like, people are putting stuff on the guild to help you make good-looking stuff on the guild. None of that existed. And I didn't, like, I didn't have any editors. And those old products are still up there. They're all pay-what-you-want, as they should be. But that helped me get some attention because people did check them out. And so from there, I had been putting my name into the hat for other things. So like I applied to work with Insider, which is EN World's fifth edition magazine that's delivered through Patreon. And I applied to work with John Four of role playing tips on stuff. And I, I got some like little gigs here and there that were paying gigs. Uh, the Adventurers League said, hey, we see you've got this stuff on the DMs Guild. Looks Okay, we think we can work with you. Do you want to come write some adventures? I thought, yeah, like, absolutely. This is cool. And the Adventures League eventually led me to Chris Perkins. And Chris Perkins DM'd me one day on Twitter and said, Hi, James, do you have any DMs Guild stuff that I can look at? And I sent him my Adventures League stuff, right? Because that, like, I had worked with an editor on and I was more proud of and had learned a lot from doing those. And about a month went by and he then reached out to me again and said, like, hey, I, you know, are you interested in working on this book called uh, Waterdeep Dragon Heist? Uh, and I was. And it was great. Yeah. And so that was the first time I worked with Watsi. And then I worked on six more books with them. And while I was doing that, like the career picked up steam and I was doing other stuff and I met a lot of people. I went to conventions, but I also like just through doing a lot of work with Watsi, met people like Joey Haig. Actually, I met Joey Hake, gave me my first job. He was the editor of Insider Magazine. So I knew him already, but we got to be good friends working on Waterdeep Dragon Heist. And then he recommended me to work with a guy named Matt Mercer. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's got a little show called Critical Role that people like. You know, very, very esoteric. Not everybody knows it. And uh, invited me to work on Explorer's Guide to Wild Mount because they needed to get that book done quickly. And Matt was like, Joey, who do you know? And so and I had previously interviewed Matt for my podcast. So like there was a little bit of a connection there. And and so I got to work on that, which was a super blast. And like all of that stuff just built and built and built. And whenever I saw an opportunity to throw my hat in the ring, I applied for it if it was out there, which is actually how I ended up working with MCDM. Not because you like fourth edition. I was wondering, you know. Well, no, that so that is actually a big part of it is I was looking, you know, this job posting was going around. Matt Colville was looking for freelance writers. And I knew, you know, I'd seen some of his YouTube videos and they said, like, you know, we're looking for people with familiarity with Matt's world. And we're looking for people who like to put a little bit of fourth edition into their fifth edition. And I was like, oh. I don't really know a lot about Matt's world, but that second one is me. So I wrote a cover letter and resume and I said, Matt, here's what I've worked on. I'd love to work with you. I really think your running the game videos are cool. I think Strongholds and Followers is, is really cool. I, I don't know a lot about your world, but I am going to like right now start watching it all because I think you're you're cool and I've just been putting it off. Let me know. And then I didn't hear from them for months. And I was like, oh, well, I, I guess I didn't get it. You know, I wasn't 100% qualified according to the job post. So, but I'm glad that I threw my hat in the ring. And then like, it was like six months later that I got the email that they were like, hey, we finally went through all the submissions and we'd like to offer you the, a gig writing for us on Player's Guide to Capital and Kingdoms and Warfare and flew out there. And we like had a big writers meeting with all the writers for Kingdoms of Warfare, came back and Matt wrote me a note and said like, hey, we have this idea for a magazine too. Would you want to come be the managing editor for that? You seem like you know a lot of people and you would be good to like tap writers for us for that. So I said, yeah. And then eventually that turned into an offer for a full-time job doing game design full-time. And so that was a year ago on February 1st. So I've been there a little over a year now and it's great. I love it. Dream job. Wow. What a journey that is. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You mentioned that you had run Waterdeep Dragon Heist for your friend and family group. You also talked about how Chris Perkins was running games like differently than than what he had written. And I want to know, do you find yourself doing that as well? Like you've written something, but do you often not ignore, but you, you change it in the moment instead of, yeah, what's it like running a game you've written or a module yeah. you've written? 
It's very fun because you do a lot less prep, right? You're like, well, I, I was steeped in this for months and months and months, <laughs> sometimes more than a year. You're like, I, I know what this is. I, I know what this is back and forth. Like maybe I'll review a paragraph or two before we go into it. It's really fun because the other thing you get to do is like, Whenever you write something, stuff ends up on the cutting room floor because there's word limits and there's, you know, like, oh, this actually needs to tie into this other thing. And we change this other thing. So then we need to change this. Right. So you get a chance to bring all that in. If you were like, oh, man, I really like that. You know, we had a half work drinking hot cocoa in the lair of the Xanathar. Right. Um, right. Which is not a thing that we actually had. I'm just making that up. But like you could add that in then if you wanted to, you could say, well, in my game, this still exists. So I got to do a lot of stuff like that. But then I also was able to do like, you know, I was pulling stuff in left and right. Like I was like, oh, yeah, we're doing the you know, we're doing the storyline of Xanathar, but I want to pull in Jarlaxle, right? Or I want to pull in this stuff from the Castle Anters. And so to be able to do that was really cool. But then also just to be like, cool, like we had a whole storyline where a player was like you know my character is a baker and she's looking for her husband who has been kidnapped and like that was it and it was like well obviously we're gonna work this into the story right like you gave me this big juicy hook what a gift i'm not gonna squander that and so to be able to work all of that stuff in yeah it was an absolute blast highly recommend it is weird i will say to play an adventure that you have written which i have also done and generally you have to, it either needs to be so far away from the process that you've forgotten everything about it because you've written a bunch of other stuff now at this point, or you just have to be willing to suspend your disbelief even more. And like for things like puzzles and that sort of thing, you let the other players take the reins. So I, I've done that several times now. And it's great because I will then, you know, I'll be like, cool, I think I will be like a character who doesn't have a lot of awareness about what is currently happening for one reason or another. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. That's uh, funny. You mentioned you try to bring in other villain storylines. Uh, one of my previous guests, my friend Hamilton, when he ran it, he did all four villains at once. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. It was, yeah, he described Hamilton. it and it sounded like absolute madness, but really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, and it's like, Am I really going to leave Manshoon on the cutting room floor? No, I'm going to put Manshoon in there. He's got clones running around water deep. It's awesome. You yeah. know, so yeah, you're definitely going to do that. <laughs> All right. What about your past experiences before you kind of got into it and, and maybe your personality too? Do you feel like have lent to you being a good game designer or being good at game design? I think one of the things that has helped me a lot is reading and playing a lot of games right and like outside of D&D because you just have a better understanding and like I know that it is a time investment to learn new games but not every game is the three book time investment that D&D is some are one page some are you know a paperback booklet some are longer than D&D right it runs the gamut but every game you learn makes the next game you learn easier. Like if you think about it, when you sit down to play your first role playing game, you don't even know what a role playing game is. You don't have any concept really for it. And so sitting down to play and you're like, oh, okay, I get this now. You don't need to get that anymore, right? You can skip every what is a role playing game section of every book from now on. So like <laughs> instantly your second role playing game is easier to learn, but you'll start to pick things up and say like, okay, I recognize that this mechanic is similar to this mechanic from this game. I recognize that this game is going for this. I know that I learn games best if I start with character creation. So I'm going to go there and read first, right? Like all those things make it faster for you and it lets you become neo and start to see the matrix like now when i read games right i read the game but i'm also like okay so the idea behind this seems to be that they're rewarding this behavior in play because that's the kind of behavior they want to encourage and the gameplay loop is you know you do this thing to do this thing and then you go here and I'm pointing right now, which is great podcast. You think <laughs> I would know better than that. But it's, you know, that idea of like reading a lot really, really helps you. But also then playing a lot of games that aren't role playing games is super helpful too. go play board games, go play sports, go play video games. All of those things can help you in your game design because those are all games and you'll you'll start to see them and understand them. 
And, you know, I also think it's good to consume a lot of media. Push yourself outside your comfort zone. I love your Lord of the Rings, your Expanses, your Star Warses. But if somebody says, like, hey, this thing is cool, you should check it out. I like to get in there and check that out because, like, you know, that could spark something. We used to talk a lot in television that, like, you see a lot of things that get copied over and over again. So, like, I don't know if you remember the original True Detective opening sequence. We then saw mimicked everywhere this sort of idea of like silhouettes and then images within those silhouettes and it was like oh i'm so tired of this technique and i remember somebody said i'd much rather television makers go be inspired by like a textile factory right like you go to take a tour of the you know your favorite snack food factory and you come back and you have an idea for how to make a television commercial than being inspired by other commercials and i think that's true in games too like Hmm. read a lot of games so you have understanding of how the mechanics work and you know how it works but when you're going to be inspired go outside of games and look for stuff there yeah i like that and you really can find inspiration from all sorts of different places too. Mm-hmm. So one of my patrons has submitted a question to ask, and this patron happens to be my friend Matthew, who ran a Wild Mountain game for us this summer. So this is very oh, relevant awesome. to that. He wants to know what parts of the Explorer's Guide to Wild Mountain you helped on specifically, and maybe what some of your favorite parts are from the book. Oh, that's a great question. So Matt Mercer was super generous and was like, we're writing this book together. Like, you know, I obviously I know the world and stuff. But like when we sat down to write it, he was like, I kind of know what's going on here. Does somebody want to write about that? I kind of know what's going on in here. What's, does somebody want to write about that? So I got to write the ISIL cross section. Nice. That's what we played. So sweet. Oh, really? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's great. So yeah, so that Matt said like, it was that it was Blightshore, which Chris Lockie wrote. And so Matt was like, I know that these things are going on there, right? Like he had said, like, I know a city crashed into Isilcross and that they had this magical technology and there might be some things in stasis. That's kind of what I know. And I was like, oh, cool. So like, can there be this? And he was like, yeah, there can be that. And I was like, so can there be like this? Yeah. And I was like, can we call the city the crash there? Aeor? And he was like, yeah, go nuts. So like to be able to do all of that stuff was super cool. So the ISIL cross section is a lot of the ideas in there are from me. I also wrote the adventure Frozen Sick that is included that takes you to ISIL cross in the beginning. I wrote that adventure. I wrote... A couple of the monsters, specifically the ones related to Isilcross, so like the Frostworm, the Aeorian folks, that sort of thing. I wrote some of the spells, some of the Dunamancy spells I created. I think a movable object is one of my favorites. Basically turn anything into a movable rod. I played a Dunamancy wizard, so yeah. Yeah. So awesome. Yes. Oh, that's great. And we all did a lot of the story hooks. So like in the Gazetteer, there are all these hooks for like, Now you're going here and doing this thing. Now you're going here. So I did that. And then I also did some of the lesser idols. Um, So I did all of the weapons of the betrayer gods. So I did those and I did like some of the other lesser idols that you see in the books that come down. So all of that, like I said, I think I ended up writing like 50 or 60,000 words for the project. And again, it was all with Matt's approval. And then Matt took all of that stuff and worked on it with Watsy. Like it's not mine in the sense of like what you're reading is every word that james and Tricasso wrote many many people had a hand in making mm-hmm. that book come to life and improving the things that i did the rough draft for basically especially towards the end of critical role season two when they're in isil cross every second was a joy for me because i was like oh i made that oh, i made that i made that you know like that was cool that does sound really cool yeah it was a fun campaign we did like high level you know, we oh, started nice. out level 14 going in and, and yes. just kind of like had a fun three month little thing while people were taking a break. So it was awesome. Yeah, I'm sure Matthew's going to be geeking out about this, too. So nice. OK, as far as your favorite projects you've worked on so far, I'd love to hear one that's non d and then one that that is D&D related, just like what what you've worked on. And, and it could be, you know, official content or it could be, you know, your your dad's guide to monsters or, or whatever you want to <laughs> include. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, that's definitely, definitely up there. My dad's monster manual was, was a joy to work on. That's something I put out on the DMs Guild. It's my last DMs Guild Adepts project because it's the last thing I worked on before I went full time with Mm -hmm. MCDM. And that's literally me showing my dad pictures in the monster manual without any other context and asking him 
what he thinks the creature is. Like, what do you think its name is? What is its lore? What does it do? And then me taking that and recontextualizing that into a monster manual. Right. So and so like, yeah, yeah. Which there were so many things that I didn't realize that like, most of the monsters have nothing that gives them any kind of scale, right? And so, like, he looked at a beholder and was like, I think this is like a, you know, rolls on the ground because there's no indication necessarily that it's flying. And I think this is like the size of a softball. And it was the first creature we were doing. And I was like, oh, my God, this book is going to be amazing. Like, I can't wait to work on this. And so being able to do that with him was really inspiring. And it really taught me, like, that, you can do anything with these games and like you can recontextualize stuff and, and have fun. And these games can really be art as well as balanced mechanical design. It was just super fun to be able to work on something with my father too, right? That holds a special place in my heart. So for the fifth edition one, I'll, I'll definitely pick that. I loved working on the Explorer's Guide to Wildmount and I loved working on, uh, just got to give a, a shout out to the Beast Heart, which is a new class that we just put out at MCDM. Mm. God, that's fun. And working on Arcadia is great because we literally let authors pitch whatever they want. And so there are so many things in there I never would have thought of on my own that it's just great to see these authors' visions come to life and help that be created. But as far as a non-D&D project, I got to go with Burn Bright. I warned you that it would come up again. Burn Bright is an original science fantasy role-playing game for Roll20. It's available only through the Roll20 platform, and it utilizes maps and uh, some of the other Roll20 features to play the game. And it was a true labor of love. We worked on it for like three years. Totally original system that uses a fun push-your-luck mechanic. And the idea is we had the Big Bang. Now the Big Shrink is happening. And you are the last galaxy in existence as like existence slowly closes in and threatens to eat everything. But you've got like a 100 years left, so maybe you can reverse this thing and there's a refugee crisis as planets are eaten up and natural resources are low and land wars and, you know, greedy corporations. Uh, you can see the greedy corporations is apparently a theme with me and unexplored planets and ancient ruins and magic. There are no humans. You play a species that has like superpowers because of their anatomy and you can be like sentient mechs that move on their own, but you can scoop up your friends and put them inside of you and, and run around. You have a group of slugs that enter corpses and puppet them, which is some of the, the weirdness and fun. Or you could be a swarm. You play a swarm of telepathic bugs with a hive mind and all kinds of other stuff. Cat people that are in there and big beetle people, crystal people, all kinds of good stuff that you can be shape shifting people. So it's just a real joy. And the mechanics are super fun. Whenever I play it with people, it's pretty eye-opening because it's kind of a tactical game, but we also took a lot from storytelling elements. The design team was very strange because I was one of the lead designers and I had a lot of, you know, experience with more tactical combat games like D&D. And then people who had more experience with narrative storytelling and it came together great. <laughs> it really came together in a in a super, super fun way. And and yeah, that team was just brilliant. So that is Burn Bright, B-R-Y-T-E. And we can talk about why that is maybe some other time. But basically, bright means an age, an era. And it's the era of the burn because that's the, the phenomenon that is coming to surround you and eat your planet. It's called cool. the burn. Got it. I'll make sure to throw some links in the episode notes so people can go check that out. All right. Is it hard to take someone else's world uh, as you did with Wildmount or a few of the other books you've kind of worked on and make it into playable material? Or is it easier as a designer because you're kind of given the sandbox in which to work or the, you know, the, the, the parameters and then you can kind of just do what you want within that space? The answer is yes. So for the reasons you mentioned, right, that it's easier in the sense that like when you go to create in a world that has already been made, you don't need to come up with every idea. And often ideation, especially in role playing games and a game like D&D that uses a lot of random tables can be difficult because you're like, whew, I'm going to think of 20 more encounters that you could have here. And if you already know what's there because somebody, you know, Ed Greenwood has years of lore, you can just look at that and be like, oh, OK, well, it looks like there's some hags and some unicorns and some. I will say that the 
further back you go, the more difficult certain things become, right? It is harder for me personally to write for the Forgotten Realms than it is for me to write for Wildmount. And then like Eberron, which I also wrote for, is somewhere in between that. And it's because the Forgotten Realms has a lot of history to it, right? So and much. so it's hard to know like what is current, what is canon, what is not, right? Like and so you can say, hey, I, you know, I'm going to do this. And they'll be like, oh, that's a great idea. But you can't actually do that because of it's going to step on this. And we have a big plan for this down the road or we're about to do this in a video game somewhere or, or that kind of thing. So that can be difficult. Those parameters that can help you, you can also run up against quite a bit. And again, like Explorer's Guide to Wildmount, that was great because it was like, hey, I'm working with Matt. I get immediate feedback of like, if it's okay to do this or not. And I was working in a part of his world where he hadn't gone yet, right? He hadn't taken anybody there. So that that made it super easy. It was sort of like creating an original world, but also having the parameters to guide you, which was the best of both worlds. When you're creating from scratch whole cloth, right? Nobody else is in charge and you get to be the one to decide. And that is really, having that power and that creative freedom is really fun. I would say on the whole, for me, that's easier as long as I'm not getting burnout, but it is more work, right? It's yeah. more work, especially if you have a team, you have to be the one to lead that team and field all their questions and keep that consistent, right? And say like, I, well, I did say that this is, you know, the way sea slugs act. And so we can't have them act this way, even though that's a cool idea, because it's going to mess up this other thing over here, which is also a cool idea. And this is more important to have than that. Yeah, that makes sense. What is it like working for the mats? Uh, you know, those two are probably the most mentioned on this show as far as people who are inspirational and, you know, people who, who people like to emulate or, or learn from. So, yeah, just like a quick little snippet about what it's like to work for both of them. Yeah, it is a joy and they are the people that they appear to be on camera, which is not true of everyone, right? Matt Mercer is kind and generous and creative and smart and encouraging like it was just and you know he could have been super mean and i would have been like well i'm still lucky to get to work on a critical role book and not at all doesn't have a malicious bone in his body as far as i can tell but is also like a strong creative leader and knows what he wants and a good boss working with him was was a delight and great and like i said you know i already said about like how much creative freedom we had to work with him working with matt Matt Colville, who I think of as Matt now because every day I'm talking to Matt and about stuff we're doing, is also a joy. And it is a joy in the sense that, like, one, Matt is really smart. He is also very kind and generous. And he is pretty hands-off. Like, he, not just with me, with a lot of the employees at MCDM, he'll say, I hired you to do this job. I'm going to let you do that job, right? And, like, he has his input and he could very easily as CEO say, you know, I'm going to override you here because I think this is what's important. But he'll say like, you know, oh, I don't agree with you here. Here's what I think. But I'm going to let you make the call because it is your job. And like, I hired you because you know about this. Right. And that is a really incredible thing. He both of them know that like respect begets respect. And Matt Colville is also very available. So like, He's not a micromanager. He's very hands off. But if I have a question, if I need to talk something out, he is there and like, hey, let's do it. Let's talk it out. And he's also brimming with ideas. Every week we're talking about a future MCDM thing we could work about. And it is just like, oh, I want to work on that right now, you know? So just a creative powerhouse that's really brilliant and really smart and fun to work for. So it's great. Awesome. Okay, the last few questions here are really about advice and then about where people can find your work. So let's get in first to the advice for aspiring game designers. So people who are listening who are really interested in designing, whether it be for games that already exist or creating new games, you know, totally new original games, what are good ways for them to practice? You know, what's the way to, to find opportunities? And then, yeah, just generally, what, what's your advice for them as they're kind of working on this journey themselves? I think a big thing is in this day and age, if you want to write and create, you're probably not going to be asked to do it unless you've already done it, which means that when you start to do it, you have to do it for yourself. 
And so give yourself deadlines. That's the biggest thing. Me having a blog, right? Like I knew that to build an audience with a blog, I had to put out content regularly, which meant that I had to have a blog post every week or whatever the schedule you decide is. Mm -hmm. But I had to have it there because people would expect it. Otherwise, they wouldn't show up every day just to see like, did James do this or not? Like if I have a schedule, they know show up on Thursday, it'll be there. Show up the first Friday every month. It'll be there, whatever it is. Giving myself those deadlines meant that I would decide things were done. And I, I've said this uh, before, and it's not mine, but other people have said perfect is the enemy of done, right? And especially when you're putting your first things out there, you are nervous because you feel insecure about it because you've never done it before. Better to get it out there and keep going than to keep working on the same thing over and over again. So my advice would be like, Give yourself deadlines, make them reasonable, whatever is going to work for you and your schedule, and also do it in such a way that you start small, right? Because it's probably going to take you more time to make a background than you think because it's your first time doing it, right? So give yourself that time. Start small. Don't start with a giant campaign world that you're going to put out and give yourself a deadline for that. Start with like, you know, one town in that campaign world that you're going to write about and go from there. So that's really my advice is give yourself a deadline so that you are writing, practice writing and go from there. That's a great, great advice. Yeah. And I think a lot of people do get stuck where they're like, well, there's there's so much more I could do, so much more editing or or things I could add. Whereas it's probably better to just start putting stuff out and, and you know, and work on the next thing and, and keep getting better at it. Yeah, yeah, I love that. All right. What about advice for people who are running games? I would say give yourself enough prep that you feel comfortable, but don't be afraid to improv. And I would say start to push yourself into uncomfortable places a little bit at a time. And by that, I mean, like, if you were like me and not totally comfortable improving and, and making things up on the fly, think about how you normally prep and say, like, I'm going to remove this section, like, I'm, or I'm just going to bullet point this out rather than write it out in paragraphs or whatever it is. Give yourself a little bit at a time, slowly remove those safety nets until you get to a point where you feel comfortable with like, hey, now, if the players zig when I expect them to zag, I feel cool about that. In fact, that excites me, right? Like now when the players do something unexpected, I'm like, yes, this is why I play the game. And I wasn't always like that. And so that's my advice is like slowly remove your safety nets in a way that makes you feel comfortable so that eventually you're in a good place if that's what you're doing. If you're already in a place like that, then my advice to you is make sure you have fun right? You got to look forward to it and you got to make sure you're having fun. So do whatever you need to do to make sure you're having fun as well. A hundred percent. All right, James, where can people find your work? Where can people chat with you and what new projects are coming up that you want to plug? So I'm at James Intracasso on Twitter at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. That's where I talk about a lot of stuff. That blog is called World Builder Blog. Uh, you can check out Burn Bright at burnbright.com. Bright is spelled B-R-Y-T-E. You can check out all the cool stuff we're doing over at MCDM. So probably Arcadia Magazine is delivered through MCDM's Patreon, and you can buy single issues on the shop. If you search MCDM Productions, uh, we'll come up. I think we're mcdmproductions.com. But you can also search for Arcadia on the store. There's links and everything there over at MCDM. Beast Heart is over there as well. Kingdoms and Warfare, which is something near and dear to my heart that I got to work on. So all of that is over there. And then as future stuff coming up, we've got lots of cool stuff coming up in Arcadia. We have a monster book Kickstarter that will be coming soon that people should keep an eye out. And I'm currently working on, in fact, I just finished the first draft of our next class for MCDM called The Talent. And it is a psionic class that's going to introduce a whole new psionic system to 5th edition D&D. So yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. I'm really, really looking forward to uh, unleashing that on the world. Cool. Yeah, I know there's tons of people out there who love Dark Sun or who love older editions where they had psionics. And, and it's been a uh... One of those things that everyone really wants in this one. So that sounds really fun. Okay, well, James, thanks so much for joining me. And uh, it's it's been a ton of fun to chat about all the different stuff you've worked on and you know to realize how many different things you've worked on that I've actually used before. But yeah, thanks for your time. Thanks for giving us some good advice about designing and about running games. And yeah, I hope to chat with you soon. Thank you, Derek. I really appreciate you having me on. This was great. 
thank you for listening to How Not to DM. Now it's time for a sneak peek into next week's guest, Jack of All Trades TTRPG content creator Joel Klein of Midlife Dices. So the funniest thing is that once we started playing them, my two sons really got into it as well. Yeah. And they are way better readers than I am. When they read something, it goes into a vault. And they know it. So they read the player's handbook. They read the Dungeon Master Guide. And so when we kept playing, they said, no, Dad, that's not how this works. It goes like this. <laughs> so I was constantly making mistakes and getting corrected by, by my kids, which I thought, well, that's awesome. You've read it. You know it. Why wouldn't I celebrate that, right? Yeah. That rule totally makes sense, kind of thing. So early on, I faced, although they were very forgiving at first, once they got into the game, they knew the rules far better than I did. To hear more about Joel's work, his story about getting into designing and creating supplements, and more, make sure to tune in next week. Remember to check out my Patreon if you haven't already for even more sneak peeks. Next time you get the chance, share this episode with your friends and family around your game table. Another great way to help me boost the show is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or rating the show on Spotify. I appreciate all of you for helping the show grow. Thank you to the team at T4C Studios for helping edit and produce this episode. My intro and outro music is by Daniel Zombo. The Quickfire Chaos music is by Exacat, and the Quickfire Chaos mood music is by Arcane Anthems. Check out the episode notes for more of their great work. And, as always, until next time, roll some Nat 20s for me.